Well, good morning, Crossroads. I love when we have missionaries in our midst, because, boy, what a reminder that the church is so bigger than us. Man, God is at work all around the world, and, and he's at work here, too. And it's cool. We're, we're a part of what God is doing across the globe. So praise God for what Tanya is, is doing there, or what God is doing through Tanya there in Cambodia. Well, over the last couple of months, we have been traveling through the book of Nehemiah. And, and I don't know about you, but I have enjoyed this study. Uh, Pastor's done a, an, an amazing job leading us all the way through this book. And this morning, we have arrived at the end of our series entitled Rebuild. And if you've been with us since the beginning of our study, you'll remember that the book opens with Nehemiah serving as the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And one day while Nehemiah is there in Persia, he receives a report concerning the city of Jerusalem, the city of his ancestors. And what Nehemiah heard that day troubled him greatly. The walls were destroyed, broken down, the the gates had been burned with fire, and the few who remained in the vicinity of Jerusalem were in extreme distress and turmoil. And upon hearing this report, Nehemiah responds and determines and discerns that God is calling him to go and lead the rebuilding of this city, the city of Jerusalem. And so after crying out to God and and receiving God's favor, he then goes to King Artaxerxes and, and receives the king's favor and his permission to set out and to go back to Jerusalem. And upon arriving there, Nehemiah wastes no time, but immediately sets out to begin the work which God had placed in his heart. He gathers the the Jewish leaders who are still there in the region. He presents his plan to them with the first order of business being the rebuilding of those city walls. And so together they enthusiastically got to work clearing the rubble that remained and and assembling and repairing these walls. And they were making incredible progress when all of a sudden adversity arrived and, and pastor preached a message on the inevitability of opposition and adversity. It's going to come in our lives. And it came to them there in Jerusalem as they were trying to build those walls. And the ringleaders of this opposition were three guys. You had Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite. And we're going to talk a lot about Tobiah today. He resurfaces in chapter 13. He's kind of the theme of chapter 13 So we're going to talk more about him, but it was Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab. And these men, they began to mock, they began to laugh, they began to ridicule the work being done and and the workers doing the work. They were seeking to demoralize and discourage Nehemiah and anybody helping him. Thankfully, these tactics did not succeed, and and when they didn't succeed, these men resorted to violence. They gathered, you know, soldiers from the surrounding region 
And they came to, to attack and intimidate all those who, who were working together there in Jerusalem. And in response to this threat, I love this, in chapter 4 we're told, you, you, you may remember, that the workers on the wall, they would literally work with one hand assembling those, those stones, and in the other hand they had a weapon ready to use it at a, at a moment's notice. I love that picture. Well, despite all the adversity, all of the, the challenges they faced, the wall was completed in just 52 days. And last week we saw in chapters 11 and 12 the dedication of that wall unto the Lord and the celebration which ensued as those in and around Jerusalem rejoiced in all that God had accomplished through them. And so now we come to chapter 13 and the close of Nehemiah. But before we move forward with this chapter and the close of the book, I wanted to spend a little bit of time and move backwards. Backwards about 75 years to the book of Daniel. You know, today being Palm Sunday and the beginning of the Passion Week, as Pastor mentioned, I just could not pass up the opportunity to take a brief look at what I really believe, and I, I probably say this about every passage I teach in the Bible, but this is one of the most amazing passages in all of the Bible, in my opinion. It's Daniel chapter 9, and my only hesitation in even going there is we just, it's impossible to give it the, the, the time that it deserves. There's so much to unpack in this chapter, and, and so we're just going to kind of go, you know, we're going to kind of take an overview and, and highlight some of the details but as we will see in Daniel chapter 9, we see a connection to the book of Nehemiah. And not only do we see this, this unique connection to Nehemiah, but also to the Passion Week, and very specifically to Palm Sunday. So in Daniel chapter 9, he, uh, Daniel, he's nearing the end of his life. He, he was taken captive as a young man. He was a part of that original Babylonian captivity when King Nebuchadnezzar came and took some of the fine young men there in Jerusalem. And he's taken to, to live out the rest of his days there in captivity, first in Babylon uh, and then in Persia. And Daniel, one day, he's studying the word of God. And he comes to realize that that this captivity that he's a part of, it's, it's, a God, it's really God's judgment upon Israel, upon Judea, upon Jerusalem. And he remembers in studying the scriptures that the captivity was only to last 70 years. And he realizes that that 70-year period has about come to an end. God's judgment is almost complete and with that revelation, Daniel goes to prayer, crying out to God for mercy upon him, upon his people, and very specifically, upon the city of Jerusalem. So I'm going to read, beginning in verse uh, 4 of Daniel 9, and these are just excerpts out of this chapter. So just follow along on the screens as I'm going to just kind of jump from one verse to another. Um, but Daniel opens in verse 4, says, O Lord, great and awesome God. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face because we have sinned against you. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. 
Oh Lord, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. There's only one city on the face of the planet that God ever said, that city's mine. It's the city of Jerusalem. Daniel goes on, he says, hear the prayer of your servant. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Boy, remember that phrase. That's the basis of all of our prayer. We do not present our request before you because of our righteousness or what we have done, but because of your great mercies. And then these next phrases, you can almost... You can almost feel Daniel's intensity, his fervency here. He says, oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. He goes on in verse, jumping ahead to verse 20. While, while I was speaking in prayer, Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Wow. Gabriel has said a lot to Daniel in this passage. And I wanted to stop for a minute and and focus in on that phrase 70 weeks are determined for your people. Now, I told Pastor this morning, I said, this is a little bit of a different message. This isn't your typical Sunday morning message, so I'm giving you that warning. And if you didn't have your coffee this morning, do something to, to, to wake yourself up, tune in. Okay, this is going to feel maybe a little bit more like a, a seminary lecture for a little while, okay? So just bear with me and, uh, you know, uh, try to try to try to... May may God give us skill to understand right now, just as Daniel had skill to understand thousands of years ago. So again, focusing on that phrase, 70 weeks. Now we in the, you know, our our modern Western world, we hear that and, you know, we can do the math. 70 weeks, you know, 70 times 7, and we can just as easily say in our mind, okay, 490 days are determined. However, to Daniel and to the, the Jewish mind to the Hebrew reader of the scriptures, they would go through a passage like this. And to them, they, it would be plain to see that what's being referred to here isn't, isn't 70 weeks of days, but rather 70 weeks of years. All right? What's being referred to isn't 490 days, but 490 Years. The Hebrew phrase literally translated would be 70 periods 
of seven are determined. The New Living Translation uh, translates this verse very well. It says, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people. You're thinking, okay, what does it matter? What's the big deal? Weeks, days, years. Well, here's the big deal. The angel Gabriel in this passage and, and speaking to Daniel in that day was about to reveal to him, to Daniel, and to anybody who would study Daniel's scroll after he wrote it, he was about to reveal to them the exact timing of the arrival of the Messiah. But you think, but nobody knows the day or the hour. You're right, of the second coming. But interestingly here, in the book of Daniel, God reveals through the angel Gabriel the timing of the coming of Messiah. Going on in, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, we see the connection to the book of Nehemiah. Gabriel goes on, he says, Daniel, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome time. Now, scholars go into depth on why this, these weeks are broken up the way they are. Some believe it was the first seven-week seven period, 49 years, that it took to fully restore the city of Jerusalem. That's, that's possible. But to put Gabriel's words here into, into what kind of our modern Vernacular, we might say it this way. Daniel, understand that from the moment the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah is going to be 483 years. So the question that naturally arises is when was that command given? When was the command given to rebuild Jerusalem? Well, it was given in Nehemiah chapter 2. As King Artaxerxes commissions and commands Nehemiah to return and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The year was 445 BC. And if you calculate the years, move ahead 483 years from that day. Now, the little catch is that you have to use a biblical year, a 360-day year, a lunar calendar year, if you will. See, we use a 365-day calendar. But when you use the biblical year, 360 days, and you go those 483 years and then convert it back to our calendar, you arrive in the year 32 AD, the year Jesus was crucified. It's widely believed that he was crucified. Daniel goes on in, in verse 26, after, after making this dec declaration, Gabriel to Daniel, saying that the coming of the Messiah is going to be 483 years. He then says, and after that, after the 62 weeks or the full 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. But notice those last words, but not for himself. 
Gabriel is stating it here as plain as can be. The Messiah is coming, and when he arrives, he is going to be executed. He's going to be killed, but not for himself. He's going to die on the behalf of others, namely me and you. Some scholars, they look at this passage and they get even more meticulous. They attempt to calculate not just the year, but the exact day. And they take those 483 years, multiply it by 360 days, and come to 173,880 days. You guys still with me? All right. And they start in 445 BC, the first day of Nisan, the Jewish month of Nisan, which we're told in the book of Nehemiah. And they calculate those days, accounting for leap years, and throw in all of the challenges to doing this on the calendar, and they arrive at April 6th, 32 AD, which just happens to be the Sunday prior to Jesus' crucifixion, the day we celebrate and commemorate today, Palm Sunday. You see, in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel refers to the Messiah as the prince. And as Pastor alluded to, he wasn't yet the king. But what's a prince? A prince is going to be king. It was on Palm Sunday that day that Jesus, for the first time, he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, which says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Is it possible that Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem that day fulfilled Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel to the very day? We're dealing with God here. Of course that's possible. And if you have Jewish friends or any friends who you're ministering to, boy, what a powerful passage to look at. In fact, many of the rabbis today have, have prohibited students from studying Daniel chapter 9 because according to Daniel 9, the Messiah had to have come around in 32 AD. So anyways, we don't want to get too off track this morning. Jesus, that day when he rode into Jerusalem, he said this. We read it in Luke chapter 19. It says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day. Some, some teacher, Bible teacher, say, man, maybe Jesus was referring and thinking about this passage, saying, You should have known you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you should have known the timing, the, the time of my coming. But you didn't know in this your day the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. So Jesus comes over that, that Mount of Olives and he, and he takes in the, the city of Jerusalem and the, the majestic temple. And as people are celebrating laying down their garments and their branches, waving the palm fronds and the olive branches, Jesus is weeping, crying uncontrollably as he foresees the destruction that once again would come to the city of Jerusalem, not even 40 years later, as the Romans come in and once again destroy the temple, destroy the entire city. 
So we've talked about 69 weeks. What about the final 70th week? Well, I'll let you read the rest of Daniel 9, not now, later, and find out what that final seven-year period is all about. Um, but for now, we've got to get to Nehemiah chapter 13 and see how this book ends. If you are interested in a further study and you enjoy studies like that, there's a couple books. Uh, one is called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. The Coming Prince. And another one with a little bit of an alternative view is by a guy, Harold Honer. His book is called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And these guys, I mean, they go crazy with this prophecy, and the details are amazing. So if you want to go further in depth, feel free. But flipping over back to, to Nehemiah chapter 13, jumping in right there in verse 1. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Now that day, probably referring to the day of dedication, that day of celebration that we highlighted last week with Pastor as they're rejoicing, worshiping with these choirs, this, this glorious day. They found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. Not the assemblies of God, but the assembly of God. Because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. I love that. And so it was when they had heard the law, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. So this final chapter of Nehemiah, it, it opens with this account of the separation of this so-called mixed multitude from the people of Israel. So who was this, this mixed multitude? Well, the first designation is seen uh, during the exodus out of Egypt, during the Passover, if you will, when God took the children of Israel out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea. This mixed multitude at that time were the non-Israelites who, whether they were Egyptian or just dwelling in Egypt at that time, they were the ones who observed God's power, you know, through the, the plagues being poured out upon the land, and they decided, you know what, we want to go with them. We're, we're coming with you. We're leaving this land, and we're going with the Israelites. However, what they didn't want to let go of was their own culture, their own ways, and their own gods. They wanted the blessings which came from associating with God's people, the Israelites, but they didn't want to obey or follow the God of the Israelites. And so from the get-go, this mixed multitude caused nothing but trouble. And we don't have time to look at the passages, but, but they were the ones who first started complaining about the manna, the worthless manna, and how they longed for the meat and all the, the fine you know, culinary tastes back in Egypt. And they turned a lot of the Israelites' hearts back to the world, back to Egypt. So they were not good for the people of Israel. Now God, uh, or, sorry, now jumping ahead, so that's Egypt, now jumping ahead a thousand years, this mixed multitude being referred to as not the Egyptians, but rather Ammonites and Moabites, who like the Egyptians, recognized God's favor upon the Jewish people and had decided to live among them. However, God knew that these people, the people who refused to let go of their false gods, would ultimately draw 
the children of Israel away from him. And so he gives this command to separate from them, not allow them to even live in their midst. And we think, wow, that sounds pretty harsh. It sounds harsh for God to say that. But what this did not mean, it didn't mean that no Ammonite or Moabite couldn't decide to abandon their false gods, abandon their own ways, their old culture, and leave all that behind them and then be joined into the community. And we see this in the case of Ruth, who herself was a Moabite. She was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And when both of their husbands died, she determined she was going to follow Naomi back to Israel. If you're familiar with the story, you'll remember that Naomi, she tried to talk Ruth out of it. She said, stay here. Stay in your own land. Find a husband. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm going back. But Ruth replied in, in chapter 1 of Ruth, she says, don't ask me to leave you. Stop telling me to stay. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And here's the key. And your God will be my God. See, Ruth didn't want just the blessings of associating with God's people. She wanted to serve the God of the Israelites. And ultimately, Ruth became the, the grandmother of King David himself. So you want to talk about being welcomed wholeheartedly into the, the community of God. We see it there. Going on in Nehemiah chapter 13, before this had happened, or, or, or maybe better translated, while this was going on, while the people are separating from the mixed multitude, Eliashib, the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah. Oh boy, this doesn't sound good already. He had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple. I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked permission to return. So we remember that Nehemiah first traveled to Jerusalem during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So 12 years have passed since that time, and at some point during those 12 years, Nehemiah, true to his word, returns to King Artaxerxes there in Persia. And in his absence in Jerusalem, things did not go so well. Again, in the previous chapters of Nehemiah, we saw great victories and great things accomplished by God's people, even in the midst of persecution and constant attempts by men like Tobiah to sabotage the work being done. But now, years later, we see that what Tobiah couldn't accomplish from outside of the city, he was now attempting from within. And tragically, this high priest, Eliashib, has over the years become colleagues with Tobiah, not only accepting this enemy into Jerusalem, but into the very temple of God. So while the, mix, or while the common people were responding to the word of God, separating themselves from the mixed multitude and their foreign gods, Eliashib, the high priest, 
welcomes Tobiah into the temple as a dear friend. And you have to ask yourself, how in the world could this happen? After all of the victories that we have seen, how could Eliashib allow this? Well, if you remember back to Nehemiah chapter 6, this really shouldn't come as much, as a, much of a surprise. Nehemiah chapter 6, look quickly there, verse 17, says, Also in those days the nobles of Judah, and no doubt you could include Eliashib in that list, they sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehoahanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. The nobles of Judah they had imagined that they had much to gain by staying in good terms with Tobiah. <laughs> in that phrase, they reported Tobiah's good deeds to Nehemiah. I just, I picture this. They're going to Nehemiah saying, hey, that Tobiah, he sure is a great guy, isn't he? You want to hear all of the good things he's done, doing? And, and Nehemiah's thinking, you got to be kidding me. The good things this man trying to destroy our work, trying to prevent us from doing what God has accomplished or God wants us to accomplish? Well, again, they had much to gain. And after all, they thought, hey, Tobiah's like family. He's married to Shechaniah's daughter. His, his son is married to Meshulam's daughter. Not only was this Tobiah an in-law, but being a high-ranking Ammonite official, there was without question business ties to be had. As was so often the case in the ancient world, along with marriages came financial opportunities. And no doubt that was going on here in this situation. And now years later, in chapter 13, the partnership which Elishab began with Tobiah has only strengthened. And we see this wicked man with living quarters in the very temple of God. And now Nehemiah is on his way back, about to be confronted with this great evil. Chapter 13, verse 7 says, I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given to them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. You know, I, I believe if Nehemiah was here with us today, and if he could speak to us personally, I believe he would tell us that when you see great evil being tolerated, you must act. 
I believe he would say there is a time for drastic action. And I believe he would tell us now is the time to stand against the evil tide sweeping through our land and sweeping through our homes. And I believe he would ask us as a church, and I believe he would ask each of us individually if we have somehow harbored the enemy in some hidden recess of our lives. Have we allowed a Tobiah to take up residence within us? And if we have, Nehemiah would no doubt urge us to immediately cast it out. Don't wait. Purge it from your life and never let it return. Some 470 years after Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and cleansed that place, another man walked into that same temple and again found it defiled. The priests in charge of the temple had once again become corrupt and were personally profiting off of the worshipers who came to that temple. They were storing up wealth by charging inflated prices for sacrificial animals and charging a high cost for currency exchange so that people could could change their Roman coins into the accepted shekel for their offerings. And when Jesus, the Messiah, rode into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, he immediately went into the temple. In Matthew chapter 21, we read, Jesus went into the temple of God, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. I love that. You know, we always think of the people in the streets shouting Hosanna. Here we're given that insight that the young children, they kept following him right into the temple and continued to shout Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders, they were indignant as they heard this and said to him, don't you hear what they're saying? Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany. Jesus' zeal for a pure temple is as alive today as it was then. The only thing which has changed is the temple has moved. Currently, there stands no temple on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. Instead, an Islamic mosque stands there. But you see, the temple, although it no longer exists in Jerusalem, the fact is the temple exists. It exists in you. We are the temple of the living God that the Spirit of God dwells in. Paul declares this in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Wow. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 
So is God's temple in need of cleansing today? Have you allowed a mixed multitude of carnality take up residence in your heart? Do you sense and are you drawn to the pleasures and the snares that this world has to offer? If so, let Jesus come in and overturn the tables of your lives. He will give you a fresh start. He will cleanse his temple. May our prayer be like David in Psalm 139. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's our prayer. Well, before we close this morning with a song of worship and and go to a time of, of prayer, let us go one final time to Nehemiah 13. We left off at verse 12, and just to summarize the rest of the chapter, Nehemiah, there's more, there's more issues to deal with there in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, we see Nehemiah restore, not only restore order at the temple, as he, he appointed a new overseer to watch over the storehouse. He also put an end to the business happenings, the business dealings which had restarted. The people weren't holding true to the covenant they had made and they were allowing the merchants to come in. And Nehemiah goes and he confronts that and puts an end to it. Nehemiah also once again urged the people to once again separate from that mixed multitude who are again leading them astray. And he then purged and purified the priesthood and summarizes his deeds in in verses 30 and 31, the final verses of this book. Nehemiah says, Thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. And I also assigned duties to the priests and to the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Then he closes with this phrase, Remember me, O my God, for good. Remember me, O God. And this is actually, if you read through the chapter, this is the third time in this chapter that Nehemiah asks God to remember him. The first time in verse 14, the second in verse 22, where he says this, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. I hear Daniel's heart there. Not because of the good things I have done, God. Don't remember me because of that. But remember me and spare me according to your great mercy. You know, and I read that and I I couldn't help but to think about the thief that hung there that day next to Jesus on Calvary. See, unlike Nehemiah, this man had not lived a very commendable life. But as he hung there that day facing death, he recognized that next to him was a great king. A king who would soon come into his kingdom. And so in a last ditch effort and cry for mercy, this man implores Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into that kingdom. And Jesus responds, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I don't know the condition of your heart this morning. Only God and you know. 
But I urge each of us to ask ourselves, is, is, is the temple of God defiled? May our prayer this morning be, oh God, search me. Know my thoughts. Go into the deep recesses of my heart and make sure there's no Tobias dwelling there. And if they are, you have permission to evict him and all of his influence from my life forever. I'm done with it. I'm moving forward. I'm, I'm wholeheartedly committed to you and to your ways. I am your temple. Oh, oh God, Spirit of God, come and dwell in me unhindered with liberty to, to lead me wherever it is you want me to go, God. If that be Cambodia, I will go. If it be to my neighbor's house, I will go. To my family, I'm there. Cleanse me, oh God. Only God knows the condition of your heart, but one thing I do know for certain is regardless of who you are or what you have done, if you will call out to Jesus for mercy, he will respond to you the same way he responded to that thief on the cross, and he will embrace you, he will cover you, the power of his blood, and one day, as we sang earlier, you will stand before the throne faultless your sin being removed as far as the east is from the west, clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God. And so God, we approach you this morning, not because of the good we have done, but because of your great mercy. Jesus, we need that mercy. God, I pray that you would convict us of sin. God, we want our land healed and cleansed, but we pray you would begin here with us. Purify our hearts, Jesus. Purify. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. God, now I pray for those in this room, maybe some who don't know you, maybe some who have been away from you. God, give them the skill to understand the greatness of your love and the greatness of your mercy. I pray against condemnation, but I pray against genuine Holy Spirit conviction which will restore the temple of God this morning. Lord, we love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.